Welcome back to the Prairie Farm Podcast. Thanks so much for joining. I am Nicholas. And I am Kent. My partner in crime over here. And we are joined by a very special guest. But before we get to that, I want to tell you a little story. I was 13. Ooh, story time. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, 13. I th- Those are some dangerous years, Nick. No, it was good. It was good. I was making brownies. I was okay. babysitting. Okay. I, I had a little sister. No, I wasn't 13. I must have been 11. Because she was one. She was one years old. I was babysitting. I had put her down for a nap. And I had made brownies. Uh, that makes me sound like I really enjoy hanging out and doing things <laughs> yeah. in the house. I do not. <laughs> that's not quite but industrious. I, I guess when I was 11, that's what I was into. Uh, and uh, the brownies just get done. I take the brownies out of the oven. And I hear my little sister kind of wrestling in her crib and awake. And I'm like, oh, I should go take care of her. And she... Um, I go into my parents' room and she looks at me and she has the biggest smile. She is so excited <laughs> because she has brownies in her hand and she's like squishing them around. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. You like, you, wait a minute. The brownies <laughs> are on the counter. Oh no. <laughs> Babysitting just got interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Finally had to do something. I didn't, I think I didn't even eat the brownies. It was terrible. It was so terrible. <laughs> But uh, so for anyone who couldn't figure out, that is poop. She had pooped and was uh, playing like Play-Doh uh, with it in Very her crib. excited. Yeah, she was horrifying. Very excited. I, I, I have a distinct emotion of, rem- of realizing what was going on. And I thought it was brownies. It was not, it was not brownies. Um, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where this is going. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. your introduction. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Just how you always wanted to be introduced. Yeah, exactly. No, but I, one of the main memories I have from that is, Mariah is her name, my mm. little sister's name, is how delighted, how excited she was uh, for these brownies in her hand. <laughs> And uh, that is the exact, um, I guess, feeling I get when I talk with our guest today about prairie or wildflowers. She gets so excited. You can just see it on her face. She's so excited. Everyone, this is Laura Walter from the Tallgrass Prairie Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, everybody. Thanks, Nicholas. I think for yeah. that introduction, that's hilarious. I. Spent a guess, lot of time on that. <laughs> Only oh, you, Nicholas. Yeah, Only you. yeah, that's a, a very deeply embedded memory and a, quite an image um, for us to have in our minds um, as we get started. Yes. <laughs> yes. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but Laura has basically a perfect voice. I don't, yes. it's, it's very pleasant to speak to. And uh, you guys probably don't have the privilege of talking to her on the phone, but I have the privilege of talking to her on the phone, and it is always a delight. She's always uh, very wonderful to speak with. And so knowledgeable, so knowledgeable that I'm not even convinced she knows common names for prairie grass and wildflowers. I think she only knows the scientific names that are like six words long and and like a hundred syllables. I hear her recite them off all the time, and I, I just think very I, good vocabulary. I'm sorry about that, yeah. guys. <laughs> no. I mean, Excellent. sometimes it does. It just takes me a little bit longer to think of the common name, especially if it's something that I learned back when I was, you know, a student. And no, I think it is really cool. I I at first was tempted. When I remember we were first talking, I was tempted to like pretend I knew what you were talking about. But after a while, I'd just be like, yeah, I don't know what that is. Well, a lot of them I do, but, but, uh, or I can recognize them. But most of them you just see written out. You don't actually hear the word Artemisia. Or uh, I, I had an ecology professor in college who 
really emphasizes, and maybe it was the same deal for, for Laura, binomial nomenclature, he would say. Mm-hmm. Don't give me that common name. I want the binomial nomenclature. Now, Ugh. I went to college up in Wisconsin, so up there is all wetland plants. and and uh, So know. everything started with Carex. <laughs> right, right. And so we, we had... Which is we, a sedge. I know that one. See? That you know more than you think. <laughs> there, there, there's, there's a real push, I think, by kind of that... that and, and my my professor has since retired. He was my favorite professor I ever had, but he was very old, old school. And, you know, you got to think at that time of education, you know, that was when I was in college. So this has been, you know, pushing 15 years ago when I had him for a teacher. You know, just being able to look stuff up wasn't the luxury that it is today. Oh, and yeah. so mm-hmm. your mind had to be this bank of of information. And so I would assume that your professor, that you would have had – when you were in college probably was the same way with really putting emphasis on knowing the correct terminology. And well, I think that, that the reason why we learned it that way was it just, it was more consistent. It was something that yeah, we could communicate, especially yep. if we were doing stuff for research projects, then we knew that if we use the com- the, the accepted scientific name that other people would understand what we were talking about and what our research was about, um, which, is, which is really why, you know, you know, taxonomy ever became a thing because you know somebody here could say oh that's a that's a a compass plant and then somebody from you know another country be like that's not a compass plant you know this is a compass plant and when you have that common thread of language you know it it bridges those gaps so we started using scientific names for things like anything with purple purple Mm. cone flower pale purple cone flower purple prairie clover it's uh there's a lot of them, and they're all different. They're very different, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, for those names. But I wanted to start us off because Laura is one of the most experts that I know in the field personally. I, I don't know if there are better experts, but if, if they're out there, I don't know them. There are plenty of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to play a game where Kent, our newer guy, who is right. learning still, very quickly. Yep, still, even with my science background, I still have a lot to learn as far as prairie ecology goes. And I would both make a mix. Only two grasses and five wildflowers, and you have to pick your favorite. Oh, my. Of the two. So I might pause us and start us again when we're done with it, but... uh, We got to write our list. Yep, and I... So part of the rules is, because Kent's kind of at a disadvantage, because I've been around the field a lot longer, Mm -hmm. uh, he gets to pick his seven first... And I can't pick anything that's the same. Oh, oh, interesting. And five Forbes is okay, but only two grasses. That's where I was like, ugh. But mm. we'll and see. no other graminoids? Nope. Ooh, this this is tricky. Grasses, no sedges. Yeah. Well, I guess sedge would count as one of your grasses. So maybe this could be something for a little tiny pocket prairie or something somebody was planting in their backyard where they didn't have space for a lot of other yes. diversity. And I honestly don't recommend one of these mixes for much of anything <laughs> we highly recommend diversity we we uh we love diversity if you see any of our uh mixes on the prairiefarm.com tons of diversity mm-hmm. uh but yeah we want to see what laura's favorite non-diverse mix okay so this is this is just like in a single pot yes even though that's probably Basically. not the most appropriate place to plant them okay all right yeah. do you need sound effects for a while while we're waiting or anything yeah sure <laughs> okay let's see <laughs> That's really good. What is that? That's that's summer. That's a summer evening in Iowa, right there. 
It's crickets, man. It's crickets. Oh, I thought I thought you were doing a bird, but that was a really good cricket. My brain was just lapsed on it. <laughs> it really I was good. taught that by my botany professor. Wow. Is that what you learned the whole class? The whole semester was... No, it was sat you down what I learned on a five-hour drive to St. Louis to go visit the Missouri Botanic Gardens. <laughs> I'm going to cut this out for sure, but I'm definitely going to try it. All right. <laughs> Pretty close, pretty close. You got, yeah, you, got the, yeah. you got the part. You just got a tongue whistle inside. Oh, tongue whistle. <laughs> it might take another like two hour ride back home oh, no. for you yeah, to get this. I used to be able to do a really good uh, ice cream shake blunder. <laughs> oh, I was like, oh, just an ice cream Regional, shake. Regionally specific to the Quad City area. Oh, Shout out goodness. to Whitey's Ice Cream. And so they had a blender that you could imitate. (laughs) (laughs) I promise we are a podcast about conservation. (laughs) You are cutting this, right? Please tell me. Please tell me. And I am a teacher. I'm a former teacher, so I can read upside down, but I, I promise you I'm not looking. Really? Is that a skill teachers get? Eyes in the back of your head and... Being able to read upside down because you're walking around, you know, students' oh, desks and okay. helping them with their work, and you don't have to like look over their shoulder. Man, I was not a good, I wasn't a good student for teachers. Well, I feel like there's like, there's like not good students who don't do well with grades. I did fine. I think teachers just really didn't. They were like distressed. There was a couple by my senior year. There was a couple of kids that like the school refused to put in classes together. And I, I think oh, that was yeah. one of them. You yeah. were one of them. Yeah. Well, I wasn't like bluntly disrespectful mm-hmm. but my adhd was just oh, it was yeah. it ravaged my mind it was it was a nice mm-hmm. time though it made high school a lot more enjoyable i think working outside and oh. with like actual physical things is a really great thing for people with adhd yeah oh it really is because you get all the different stimuluses mm-hmm. going i actually found when doing homework i will listen to uh japanese music very and, and they're very a lot of a lot of senses, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of uh, stimulation going on. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it's nice because I can't understand what they're saying. And, uh, then it just like fills my mind. I kind of focus mm-hmm. on a thing. Mm-hmm. It really helps. All right. What do you that's got? A good little tip there. What do you got? Oh, well, that's a bummer. <laughs> oh, I went all tall stuff. I think you guys are challenging me too. Cause really <laughs> seed mix design is not my thing. I can talk about the individual characteristics of those plants and you get to pick what the, uh, what the categories are that make it uh, a good mix or not for this. Oh, for this competition. You get or if you don't like either of ours, you could pull from each of ours to make like a better mix. <laughs> that is true. I'm sure, I'm sure many of our listeners do wonder what flowers and grasses would be a good pick for them. Mm, SOG. I've spent a lot of hours in the SOG this summer. You guys must use different abbreviations than we do. Well, oh. side, side oats grow on there. Oh, I see. Okay. I would call that Booker. Okay. What? what? Why? <laughs> Boodaloo, Curtipendula. <laughs> which I love to say. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that for you. It is a great, great name. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's almost as good as um, Symphoricarpus orbiculatus, which I had to practice for a long time before I could Wait, say that. What is, I've heard that one. It's a shrub. All right, I need my fifth one. I think I want a code. Can't have a pale this, is, this is totally not fair because basically it's just going to be me picking which one has the most of my favorite plants in it. <laughs> that works. Look, 
Laura, it, one of us brought you cookies. And the other one... <laughs> well, but, but to be fair, I brought you cookies, too. Yeah, that's... It cancels <laughs> out, yeah. They weren't brownies, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to go through this, and I know I'm just going to want to not cut any of it out. Oh, for... no. <laughs> right, okay, now I'm nervous. All right, okay. The moment of truth. Mine is double-spaced. I well, I, wait a second. <laughs> you were not supposed to tell me whose was whose. No, 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 no. You got to, you got to know. That way, you just don't know beforehand. Okay. You can't be thinking about it. I need it to be biased, right? Because we we've been working together a lot longer. Mm. And, and oh, Nick didn't know you had a career in politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no, no, we don't like we don't like politics. Politics <laughs> often gets in the way of conservation. Mm. Sometimes Nicholas it saves it. lobbyist Lirio. Oh no, mm. oh no. I have a family member that works as a lobbyist. And he doesn't like how the system works. He's not a fan. Oh, man. Um, there's, there's stuff I like about both of them. So that's a real cop-out. That's a, like a that's mom a good phrase, teacher. That's a good teacher it? response. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't love any of my kids more than the other, right? <laughs> um, we all know, Mom, I'm your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I do like, um, I like at, at least, I, I like the grasses in both of them. The combinations are nice. I like that you have one of the larger stature grasses, but one of the slightly shorter stature grasses um, in each of them. A little bit of habitat layering there. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, I I like the choice of the Indian grass. I think it's a slightly less competitive one of the of those those dominant Mm -hmm. warm season grasses. I almost picked switchgrass, but I was like, "Ah, I can't do because if you only have switchgrass and you don't have big blue Indian to keep it at bay, you can't do that. Yeah, Yeah, and then I I like the little blue in the other one because little blue is such a nice, dense, tufty grass. Um, I think the side oats can sometimes be a little bit, you know, it can be a little bit competitive too. I and would I'm, pick little blue if mm-hmm. he hadn't already, if he taken, hadn't already it. taken it. Yeah. yeah. I like the, the, the bunchiness of that. That's also great habitat for little small mammals and right. um, other things that like to nest underneath those, those clumps. Um, you both have milkweeds in them. I think that maybe having two milkweeds in the mix on the one side, when you have s- such a small palate overall, mm-hmm. um, that, that may be a little bit too heavy, too heavy on, on the milkweeds. And also, um, there's, uh, like your swamp milkweed is going to need, I mean, it's going to be kind of borderline whether that's going to be happy in the same that's soils true, that yeah. your other species are, 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 yeah. Or it needs to be a little bit wetter. Um, and I can see that there's some, some real, um, your standard things that, that bloom in the first year and the second year in the, in the, yeah. the other person's keeps mix. The, keeps the buyer happy. Yeah. yeah. Right. So we've got, um, in, in your mix, Nick, you've got black eyed Susan. So that's going to be a reliable first year mm, kind of a that's plant. That's one of his favorites. Um, and you've got your wild bergamot and your gray headed coneflower, which are kind of your mid season, mm-hmm. um, pair. That's a, that's a, a heavy hitter. Um, uh, the prairie blazing star, I love having that in there um, for the pollinator value, and it's just a spectacular and beautiful. Plant. I know it's my it's my starting favorite, to sound like probably. a Nick win here. Let's let's uh, but you know it's tricky to get that one to establish yeah. in in a planting. At, um, so th- that's that's a kind of a, a risk, but maybe one worth taking. Um, Compass plant is going to take a few years before that one is really visible. So mm. I see that one in yours, Kent, and yep. I um, I love that plant. Um, but it'll it might... stand up tall with the, mm-hmm. the big blue. That's why that's why I liked that one. Yep, you won't see it for a couple of years, but but once you do, that's going to be a lovely thing. Um, and I love your pale purple coneflower too, yep, uh, and I think that's going to be happy with your little blue stem. 
Um, and of course, we both know that we like Rattlesnake Master a yep, lot. Yep. So I'm I'm happy with that too. It's just my um, favorite one. I had to put it in there. But man, Nick, you got the butterfly milkweed. Got the butterfly milkweed. How I could not believe you didn't put butterfly I know, milkweed I, in. Yeah. So butterfly milkweed is probably my second favorite forb. However, it's so short that with such a tall mix that I had, it's like mm. might, That's be, a good point. might be hard to see it in there. And mm-hmm. might, I would have might even be hard then. Might even be well, hard. Well, he does. He has common in his. Oh, he has common. Okay. Yep. Although, I, also you know, chose, so, I also chose swamp there, and I mostly went mm-hmm. with that just because it was tall as well. Oh. And and they grow, they do seem to grow pretty well with our common on our farm because I have to weed that field. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so you common. have personal so, experience. Right, so, it, yeah. so I, I was like, yeah, they mm-hmm. seem to be pretty friendly with each other. But yeah, but uh, yeah, I think you have a good point there. My soil would probably be a little too dry for the swamp to really be. Man, you yeah. are taking prevalent. this like if like a teacher's the... pet, getting his, his paper graded. <laughs> You're like, hey. oh, those are great points. I'll I got you. Got to learn, right? <laughs> That's true. Learn. That's true. I'm outnumbered. And I can be a teacher's pet too. because I was a teacher, and so I know what is the right kind of student and what kind of student do you not want oh <laughs> whoa well, okay all right all right all right now before the, there are fists thrown here um i i think you know what i'd really like to do is i'd like to put your mixes together so we have some more diversity and um, I love it. And, and and pull those together where would there be any of those species if you just made a mix because there's what seven per species seven mm-hmm. per list mm-hmm. would there be any of those you would leave out uh, I would probably reconsider the swamp milkweed because everything else that's on the list, I think, would would be kind of a music. Um, what uh, what would uh, you put in there instead of the swamp milkweed? Oh boy, do I get to choose? I'd like something else that blooms late in the season, so I'd like some kind of an aster, like a New England or a sky blue, or I love me a sky blue or yeah, uh, or a smooth almost blue. Almost put that, yeah, or uh, or my... a heath aster, yeah. any of those late flowering asters, or a, a you know a goldenrod, like a showy goldenrod mm-hmm. or a stiff goldenrod. Asters are really cool because they are tiny and then they just cover the mm. plant. It's such a mm-hmm. cool thing we find uh but sky blue aster is really tall and so harvesting it you get tons and tons of silage you know for like a hundred pounds of seed you'll get like which is you know two bags worth you'll get like four i think we had four and a half large silage wagons mm-hmm. yeah filled. you know what and then trying to dry that oh, silage yeah. is, so mm-hmm. you're cutting it a little bit before all of the seed heads are mature so that it's the then ripening afterwards so it's a great question for mm-hmm. dad okay I'm not, I'm not sure i'm not yeah. sure i know that he understands certain species the window of getting them before quote-unquote ripeness is uh larger for some species mm-hmm. than others because mm-hmm. some have more forgiveness where if you get them too early they'll still yeah. ripen and have a good germ mm-hmm. and some won't you really got to get them i think ohio spiderwort you've really got to get on pretty on center of mm-hmm. when they're ripe because mm-hmm. and i don't know why that is uh but um yeah, yeah. real quick because I, sure. I don't think we ended up doing that ourselves would you read the oh. species on each list okay yeah, so sure. kent's list is second place list big blue stem <laughs> Little blue stem, compass plant, common milkweed, pale purple coneflower, rattlesnake master, and swamp milkweed. Now, for the record, that swamp milkweed, which was the weakness on my list, I nearly put sky blue aster, and I was like, no. <gasps> you would have maybe won, man. Oh, my. Don't they say in standardized testing, always go with your first intuition? If you don't yeah, know. you should never change your answer. You should <laughs> always go with your gut. All these teacher lessons. Okay, now, Nick, you got we got to yes, get off here. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So Indian grass, cytoats grandma, butterfly milkweed, black-eyed Susan, 
prairie blazing star, wild bergamot, and gray-headed coneflower. I'm very proud of that mix. Okay. <laughs> Is that he got a, a he mix, he was but. able to look at my list before he filled his out. So yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. I had who, to choose from. Who created the rules for this game? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I, I I'm was, just kidding. I I will I will acknowledge your victory, well, and will allow you to buy me a victory slice of pizza on the way home. World is going on here. <laughs> <laughs> We're creating new rules as we go. Oh man. Well, the reason we had, as I stated before, Laura judge that is because I don't know. They may be out there, but I don't know anyone better to um, to look at mixes and kind of tell their quality. Uh, mm. And she is with the Tallgrass Prairie Center at UNI, um, and we love working with her. But Laura, I want to start with how in the world did you get into Prairie? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, how far back do you want to go? Probably uh, not the place. You can go to your mom's wh- first wh- birthday yeah, if you want. <laughs> Where okay. did the passion begin? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, um, I moved to Kansas when I was about five. Okay. Uh, with my family, of course. And um, so... So where, so where were you moving from? Various places. Colorado, Germany, Illinois. Oh, there was, there, wow. was a, there was a series of things. So we, we moved around quite a lot when were I was a, a kid. Were you a military kid? No, I always get asked that, but no, I wasn't. Um, just a, a child of, of parents who had, uh, I guess, a little bit of wanderlust. Sure. Um, so uh, once we got to Kansas, we ended up in um, the Flint Hills region for, for most of my childhood. And that is, if you're not aware of it, it's one of the last remaining um, large landscapes um, that's still dominated by um, tall grass prairie. Mm. And so I was growing up with this stuff all around me and not necessarily aware of its value or its beauty because I was just a kid growing up in that kind of a landscape. Um, uh, I had a couple of events that happened when I was in high school that started to set me on this path, one of which was that I had a horse for a while. We lived um, in a hobby farm um, out in the middle of wheat fields, but they're um, right outside of the Smoky Hill River Valley where we were living at the time. There's a series of hills that are still, um, they're pastured and they're they're with native native grasses and, and forbs. And I loved riding my horse up in those hills. So I got permission from a landowner and um, I'd get the gate key and I'd go and ride my horse out in essentially a prairie landscape for hours sure. by myself. I mean, That's awesome. a little bit of an introvert maybe. Um, Did they, they never said anything about trails you would leave in the prairie with the horse or was that non-existent? That was not, they, they just said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Take the wow. key, go up there, That's explore, cool. have fun. That's really awesome. Um, and at the same, the same place where we lived, we had you know, this little five-acre hobby farm. Just in the north of us was about 10 acres of uh, hay meadow that was also native prairie grasses and forbs. It was Very a, cool. amazingly you know, that this little patch was preserved. It didn't belong to us. And about a year after we moved in, um, the fellow that owned it uh, decided to till it under and, um, and plant it, I think it was to sorghum or wheat. Um, and that loss, I think was one of the things that set me on my path. Um, later on, I went to Kansas state university, which is in actually the Flint Hills region of the state. And, um, I was going to be a veterinarian. Um, and partway through my, my studies, I decided I wanted research experience because that would help you get into vet school. Right. And I talked to, um, my biology professor at the time and, 
he said, well, what, so what are you interested in for a research experience? Do you want to be in a lab or do you want to be in the field? And it was one of those moments <laughs> where you don't have to think. Right. It's like I knew I wanted to be in the field. Get me outside. <laughs> yeah. And so I spent a summer working for a plant population uh, and community level ecologist at the Kansa Prairie uh, Biological Station that's part of Kansas State University. Um, and his name was David Hartnett. Uh, and he became then later on after I graduated my, um, my graduate advisor. So I stayed on there and did a, a master's thesis doing field work out at the, at the Kansa Prairie. So at this point, had you abandoned the veterinarian thing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> after that first summer working at Kansa Prairie, I was like, okay, um, you know, doing, you know, puppy and kitten spay operations under fluorescent lights uh, day in and day out <laughs> versus roaming over the hills and generating research questions yeah. and um, being on my hands and knees uh, in the sun with the ticks and the bugs and identifying plants and finding snakes and being, you know, surprised by bison. Right, I mean, right. what more could you ask for? So, um, so that was just a, um, a hugely important uh, experience. And that's where I learned to identify plants and got really familiar with the the prairie plants, and that's why I use the scientific names all the time. When um, during that time, I also met my husband. We um, ended up moving to Iowa, um, had a couple of kids, and my life changed. So I was um, primarily um, doing things with my family and mm -hmm. raising kids, and and found ways to make myself useful in the meantime by teaching at various levels. Um, sure, but when there was an opportunity to come on as a temporary native plants technician at the Tallgrass Prairie Center. Uh, I was teaching part-time, uh, and I said, hey, would it be okay for somebody to come in and do this half-time uh, and still be teaching? Um, so I did that for about nine months, applied for the full-time position here during that time, and then um, started cool. here in January of 2019. Wow. And I'm so so happy that, you know, this is obviously this is not a small, short little life journey that's that's mm -hmm. taken me here. This has been a long time coming. Right. Yeah. And and I'm so happy and grateful to be able to have landed in this. And I just it it, it seems like, you know, you, you don't know this is not supposed to be a lesson about life paths, right? <laughs> you know, this is about native plants. It but all comes together. It does. Is there much of a difference though? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean if 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 that 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 interest, that passion is, is in you, um, then it can find expression in your life um, at various stages in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just glad that it's yeah. getting to express itself this that way That sounds now. a lot like a, like a wildflower. Aw, like just putting down those roots first. Yeah, and, and then wow. expressing itself and, and making its color known. And uh, there is... Making its color known. Wow, you could be a poet, Nick. Oh. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> man, I didn't know this was going to get so deep. <laughs> no, uh, that's that's where we live. You should hear our. We've been thinking about recording our conversations when we drive to other mm. interviews because we end up having these really deep, meaningful, life pondering yeah. <laughs> conversations. You solve yeah, the world's problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we've actually figured everything out. Uh, we just need plant more native to plants. To us. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's what it yep. is. That's exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We oftentimes the conversation goes. Can you believe they're telling that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or can you believe they're mowing that? Yeah. That was today. Really that was or, today. We saw or this. Butterfly milkweed. There's a lot yeah, of that. There's a lot of that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right now it's a good time to see it on yeah. the roadside. Yeah, it's beautiful. A month mm -hmm. ago it was wow. Ohio spider ward. Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. Yeah. But 
so you had mentioned there was a time in your life you got married. So you had all this education and you were, you were in your passion. Then you got married and you seemed to do a lot more mom tasks with your, you kind of alluded to, uh, um, hanging out with your family more, which yeah. is also a passion. Um, was, did your love of nature make its way into that time period strongly at all? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> we, we spent a lot of time outside. So I, I, um, raised half wild children, I guess. That's good. <laughs> um, That's good. We have a, uh, a, a prairie patch in our backyard, which is now more of a savanna patch because a tree has grown up over it. Um, and we would go out, you know, short trips because little kids don't like to oh, always yeah. be in the car all the time. Yep. Um, but we do short trips to um, surrounding nature areas and let them explore and experience that. that. Awesome. And each one of them has carried that on into their lives in different really? ways. Yeah. So our oldest is a, he's a biologist. He um, actually works for a, a biotech company, but, um, but he also loves to go out into nature and do nature photography. Our middle one is a tech guy. He's an electronics engineering tech. Um, but he loves nature photography as well. Cool. Um, and then the youngest one is an artist and gets kind of expired by the, uh, the forms of, you know, of, of animals in nature and then kind of morphs with those. So, yeah, sure. Um, I, I've noticed, because I'm not a parent and I haven't gone through that part of my life yet, but I have noticed my friends in, in high school, despite how they may have been raised either really strict or not strict at all or anything like that, they... Now their life, the highest correlation of how their life, the trajectory of their life right now is based off of what their parents were doing when my friends were young enough to watch them. Hmm. And, uh, and, and so I know there's things like, uh, for instance, my mom was a, a teacher and she taught me a lot of things and, and she was my grammar teacher. And, uh, I know a lot of grammar things, but none of that. You sticks. talk pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nick talks real, real good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, she would cringe if she heard this. Sorry, mom. <laughs> You're gonna have to cut that. But it was the yeah, it was the um, love of learning that I actually mm. got from mom because that's what she loves. You know, she's been in school her whole life to some degree, getting uh, whether it was her PhD or certificates or you know these other kinds of things and. Uh, and it sounds like that's what your kids did. You know, you mm -hmm. may have you may have taught them well, but what it was is you loved a thing, and they they saw that and picked up on it. And I think that is really cool. Yeah, they took it in their own direction. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I'm curious, Laura. You know, Kansas and Iowa. There's certainly some very significant commonalities there, right? Mm -hmm. And from a prairie standpoint, though. I guess I don't know Kansas well enough. I think I've only been to Kansas City maybe once in my life. I've, I've <laughs> actually traveled to, I think, 37, 38 of our 50 states, but Kansas is one that I have not been to in a very, very long time. <laughs> and uh, just from what I've seen, in, you know, maybe on TV shows or, or pictures or whatever, it does seem to be a significantly different landscape than mm -hmm. Iowa. Mm -hmm. And from a prairie standpoint, of course, I mean, you were growing up there. Well, I guess you were a student there though, too, in college yeah. and, mm -hmm. and so forth. How have you noticed the prairie in Iowa compared to Kansas? Or even when you came to Iowa from Kansas, was it like, whoa, this is, <laughs> you know, I, I got to think that more of Iowa's land. I mean, Kansas is a huge ag state as well, of mm -hmm. course. But Iowa is very 
especially as you get closer to the northern part of the state, you know, even even if we went northwest of where we're sitting right now a little ways, um, fence row to fence row agriculture mm-hmm. and development. Did did that difference, was it stark to you when you came from Kansas to Iowa, from one prairie state to another prairie state, or uh, is it pretty much the same deal? That's, that's a really insightful question because um, uh, – you know, Kansas has different regions to it also. And so sure. I alluded to the fact that part of my growing up, I was in the Smoky Hill River Valley, which mm-hmm. is, um, you know, just flat as a pancake, beautiful right, um, right. wheat growing um, region. Um, but the last nine years that I was in the state, I was in um, the area around Manhattan where Kansas State is. Sure. And that is in kind of the heart of the Flint Hills region. And so you can tell by the name of the region, um, it's hilly. And, right. and those hills are, um, are rocky. So it's got layers of, of, um, you know, some Permian geologic deposits, um, oh, a little cool. bit younger than those around here, but it's got alternating layers of, of limestone that has a lot of, of chert deposits or flint nodules okay, in it, yeah. um, and shale. And those erode at different rates. And so you get, um, really interesting kind of a topography with sort of level uplands that are almost mesa-like and then hillsides that step their way down into valleys um, that have some um, some tree cover so there's usually what they call gallery forests down in those valleys that have um, uh, burr oaks that are spaced out Mm. um, with some understory vegetation Uh, but then you've got these 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 step-like hills but a level horizon you know so you look out over the horizon it's like flat land right but if you you know start to let your gaze kind of um descend then then it'll follow those contours of those hills down into those forested valleys and it's um the 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 rockiness of that those shallow soils the steepness of those hillsides those are all factors that kept that from being suitable for tillage so down in the river valleys you've got tillage but up in the hills um this was used as grazing land and continues to be used as grazing land today which is the use that it found that allowed it to be preserved as grassland um it's also been managed um for that that use as as rangeland um, and uh, that means that a lot of that area is um, burned very frequently. So, mm. um, uh, you know, an annual burn regime mm. will help keep the woody vegetation out, uh, stimulate the warm season grasses that they want for forage, yeah. Um, yeah. and reduces a lot of the forb component. So the um, the prairies have a different. So, you, getting back to your question, the prairies have a different look to them because they're much more heavily grass dominated um, out there in the Flint Hills, and in, in my my perception anyway. And then coming here, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was absolutely shocking to Mm. see how little of the prairie is left. Now, you do have those beautiful prairie landscapes in the Lust Hills. And I finally had the opportunity to visit those with another native seed producer, actually. um, Last year, it was was great. Bill Buman and Chelsea took me out to some of their favorite places out there. Very cool. Um, and, and it, you know, it, it just, (laughs) you know, stirred my heart, like, like going back and going home really in a way. Um, but, uh, the, the sheer isolation of these, these tiny little remnants of prairie that we have here was, was very startling to me. But on the other hand, um, the recognition by more people of the value of the, those things is something that was also surprising to me that, that, um, 
that there were organizations around, uh, you know, native plants and and prairies that are quite well populated. And and it seemed like there were a lot of enthusiasts over over prairies here um, that gave me some hope. And then the the history also of our state's um, involvement in restoration activities, like our Wow, I mean, our, our roadside programs that go back into the, you know, the late 1980s, um, mm-hmm. where we had, you know, such forward-thinking, conservation-minded legislators, you know, who got together, you know, the the um, the people with the knowledge to figure out how do we manage our roadsides more ecologically, to you know, save money and have safety, but also have you know, erosion control and habitat and and beauty on our roadsides. I mean, I think that's that's impressive. So yeah, there are differences. Yeah. Um, but part of it is that the, the less of something you have, the more you appreciate it and the more that you are willing to work to, um, to bring that back. Yeah. That's, that brings a yeah. really interesting thing. We've been talking about the bringing back, mm-hmm. um, because you, we can't have perfectly exactly what we had, even to the extent that we've said, uh, while we were talking earlier today, some species, whether it's plants or animal have just gone extinct. They're gone there. And that's like a sad thing to think about, but they're, they're not, especially songbirds, you know, the, the the way songbirds have been affected. I mean, and obviously there's, I think most of what we're, we're talking about is extirpation, which is, you know, regional extinction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, from the songbird standpoint, I mean, it's pretty sobering as to what's happened in Iowa and and on our planet for that matter. Yeah. The declines in some of the, especially the grassland nesting bird species are, Mm -hmm. are well-documented and pretty, um, you know, pretty depressing, but then there are, you know, there are those hopeful signs like the return of some of those species to areas that have been restored. And even those that are restored by, um, management for activities or, economically viable like yeah. um you know some of the the grazers who are um grazing in ways that support populations of of bobolinks i think about phil Specht's farm and and the work that he's done mm-hmm. in um restoring uh, yeah. that for as habitat for grassland birds while also demonstrating that he can can raise cattle on that ground that yeah. is a- incredible we we were just chatting with um a gentleman named ted cook who uh i'll i'll send you the link when we come out with it because he talks about uh, making it um, sensible for farm and landowners to put prairie and grasslands back. Like, how can we make it financially viable? Because mm-hmm. farmers aren't bad guys. There's very, you know, I, I've run into very few farmers who are who are just, you know, totally disregarding. Most of it is they have a certain amount of land, and they need to come up with a certain amount of money to pay the bank to feed their family. You know, those kinds of things, and they're doing it the best they know how, the best mm-hmm. they were taught. Um, but that brings you back to um, we're not just looking back and trying to restore. We're looking for a way forward, mm-hmm. um, right? Our population is higher than it's ever been. We've got to come out, yeah. come up with new creative ways to be, to viably and efficiently um, and respectably uh, create, uh, produce um, vegetation and to conserve what we had and uh, to do agriculture in a way that I, I can't think of a better term than than respecting the generations after us, mm. right? Sustainable. Um, so, without looking forward, and and for you, one of the things I love about you is, is you are so positive. I sometimes I can be like a, a a doom and gloom person when it comes to agriculture or you know conservation, but you just always and, and, you know find I, a way I've to actually thought about this very thought about thing that, that you just mentioned yeah. with the positivity. 
it, it's so easy when you take a, a stance as a environmentalist or a conservationist to dwell on the negative because the negative is very present. Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, go back to our vehicle rides here. I don't know if the same thing runs through your mind, Nick, as you're looking out the window. I, I know it does to some extent because you're calling out you know, Forb names and stuff like that. But sometimes I look and I th- look at all the invasive plants that we have in our landscape or um, just uh, yesterday I heard on a, on a podcast and was reading off the number of raccoons per square mile in the uh, United States or maybe it was a specific state now compared to at settlement. At settlement, I believe that number was around uh, two raccoons, one to two raccoons per square k- uh, kilometers what it was mm-hmm. now it's about uh like 200 so mm-hmm. you know just uh things are out of balance right yeah. things are things are all over the yeah. place we have all these newcomers and everything and so it can it can get to this point where you're you can get bogged down by looking at that and say wow that is an impossibility to get that to get all that wild parsnip out of out oh of here. man or all the horsetail or all the all you know uh, I I spent a lot of time uh, hoeing weeds, people. And, uh, yeah, me too. The, my the, elbows. That's yeah. you see me rubbing oh, yeah. my elbows. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, why. That's where you feel it. And mm-hmm. all that Pennsylvania smartweed and everything that oh the crown vetch that people are still planting in the ditches. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> yeah yes. Mm-hmm. You see all of that and you just think to yourself, this is overwhelming. Yep. But then you talk with people like Laura or uh, Bob St. Pierre. And, and Howard Vincent and Ed Cook and and yeah. Carter Niemeyer and, and, and everyone else that we've talked to, the Brannemans mm-hmm. and uh, Abby Barton. These people, they have a very positive outlook. They, they, they acknowledge the negative. They say, yes, that is, that is our problem. That's what we're up against, right? Yeah. That's what we're facing. But I believe that we can make the most of it. And that's really what... I think Nick, he, he said it very, I wish we would have been recording during lunch because he said it very eloquently. Mm. And he was like, you know, maybe it's because he was enjoying a Subway sandwich at the time. And, <laughs> yeah, I and he was just, he was, he was doing, he, he was just going. And he said, we're not really so much focused on getting back what we once had. That's, a, that's part of it, right? We want to try and, and bring in native species back to where they belong. Mm-hmm. But agriculture has a place on our landscape with, you know, everyone says 7 billion people anymore. That number is a lot closer to eight. And mm-hmm. uh, we're at about, we're pushing 8 billion people on this planet. Far more Iowans now than there were 200 years ago or 150 years ago, I guess, would be closer to settlement. And, you know, we, we have to factor that in, right? And w- there's got to be a reasonable way to do it. And, and uh, agriculture certainly has to be a part of that plan. And mm-hmm. so what does this modified prairie landscape look like? Well, we're not entirely sure, but we do know that prairie needs to be a part of a modified prairie landscape. And and I think that that's really, really what we can consider when we look at, mm-hmm. you know, what what Laura saw when she first, you know, crossed the Missouri River here into, mm-hmm. into Iowa and think you would have had to cross the Missouri river, right? Uh, to, to come <laughs> yeah. into Iowa. Yeah. We're bookended. So, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I think when you hear us kind of go on and on about some of the negatives, know that we, 
we have a very positive outlook too as to there's going to be some good things that are going to come from this. Yeah, one of the amazing things is when you start from 99.9% of your prairie being gone. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Spoken that's as an true. old teacher, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think um, I put a good face on things. Um, I think that it's, um, it's, it's hard to keep moving forward. But, you know, I, I don't so much have hope as I have a job to do. And I feel like that's that's where um, that's what keeps me going is thinking that there's all this work to be done, yep. mm-hmm. and uh, and so somebody's got to keep doing it, and it and it's folks like you guys, um, and you know who are actually growing the seed that is making it possible for people to see a different vision of um, you know on their in their own home landscape or on their their farm landscape or their CRP yeah. ground. Um, where maybe, you know, we were talking, I think also over at lunch about, you know, maybe on the farm, we could think more about, you know, farming the profitable acres, um, and reducing inputs on those that are not bringing us profit, but then Mm -hmm. uh, convert those into conservation, which has multiple benefits besides, you know, also having some financial benefit for farmers who participate in programs. So, um, and that's more, um, that we have the knowledge to do that. We have the information. It just needs. We need to convince those folks who are who are working within a system mm-hmm. that. I mean, there's. They, I, I think about. Yeah, the the farmer's not a bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're not wanting to destroy the source of their livelihood, right. but they're working within a system that has certain rules yes. and certain dominant players that narrow their range of choices and what the the kind of work that you guys do is you are broadening their range of choices and mm-hmm. i think that's you know we got to maybe see it yeah, that it's got to make sense you know and it's mm-hmm. not it's not just we we often use myself and, and nick we've probably been guilty of talking about all the time you know the bare minimum of they got to eat too you know but it's more than that. They want to, they want to get their kids braces. They want to pay for their kids college. They want to, they want to be able to go on vacations. They want, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're no different than, than any other person where, where they don't want to just survive. They want to thrive. And Mm -hmm. we got to make that make sense to them Mm -hmm. through. Mm -hmm. uh, And, and and when I say that, it's like, okay, how do we do that? We just have conversations. Well, they're right now, probably the, the biggest program for helping a farmer, uh, have financial, I guess maybe, I don't even want to use the word motivation, just good, a good business decision. Like I like how Laura said, broadening the choices for that farmer to make a good business decision. Our biggest tool right now is probably CRP, right? And Mm -hmm. so that's, that's federally allotted money through, through the farm bill program. And, and, let's come up with more conservation programs that, yeah. that, uh, you know, or, or expand on the ones that we do have or increase the rates or, or whatever. But keeping in mind that we want to help yeah. these people have the best kind of life that they can enjoy by, mm-hmm. but also that makes sense along with conservation. And so, um, Ted Cook gave us some great examples that are as alternatives to just like a CRP type of model. I mm-hmm. talked about carbon credits. I think that's a fantastic idea. I think that can even, you know, those could even be branched out beyond just, just um, you know, farmers. You could take those into people living in 
in uh, urban areas and use them as motivation for putting in pollinator plots in urban areas. And we're seeing that happen a lot, which, by the way, would be a great time for a commercial, Nick. Uh, um, <laughs> our goal. Yes, we are. Why don't you take it away? I feel like I normally do it. You got this, man. He forgot the detail. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I tried putting him on the spot. Now he's putting me back on the spot. That's, you got it. You can put on the spot squared right there if we're keeping track, math, track mathematically. You don't uh, need me to put on my cheesy commercial voice again, do you? Yeah. <laughs> you can. I'll give you a script to read. <laughs> Laura, can we please tell a story about where your voice has been used elsewhere? Yes. Oh, no. The, Laura is a professional <laughs> don't voice t- actor. Here, I got an idea. I was paid tens of dollars Tens of dollars. <laughs> by, by who? Don't don't say the place because we're, we're, we're going to have you like, here's what I have envisioned. You say the exact thing you said. And if so, if that like brings back a memory in somebody's brain who's listening in, you tell us where you heard this voice, and if it's correct, well, uh, Nick, oh, well, I will we'll, send you a hat. I will send you. There a we hat. go. We'll send the you one of these stylish Hoxie native. Does it hats. say the name in the it thing? It says the name oh, in the thing. Oh, the no. phrase says the it name, says the so name. I can't. No one's well, I tried helping you guys, no but I could say. I don't know. Maybe this is like me taking off my UNI logo or anything. <laughs> um, uh, Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I can if I can do this. I can't I can't do it like a commercial entity. Um, but I could say thank you for choosing to plant native plants. <laughs> there we go. I it's like so it. Good. It's so perfect. <laughs> I need to work on that one. No, yeah, it's good. It's very it. good. I'm going to send you weekly scripts and you just record them and send them back to me and we'll put them out for people to hear. It would be great. <laughs> well, we may as we may as well we may as well give you the the sample of the the little uh voice recording of Laura's that's been out there in the out there in the Are you allowed to say? I don't see why not. Okay. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Thank you for choosing Waterloo Regional Airport. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that reminds me of the story of when they tracked down Siri. Who is Siri? You know, and they Yeah, they figured it they out. Figured I it think out. she only got paid like a thousand bucks. Yeah, to she, go she in. kinda spoke into a microphone somewhere, for didn't really know what days, it was gonna get yeah. used for and now we all have her and voice. And she didn't like say any words. She just said syllables. Like wow. like all the noises they could think, or all of the sounds they could think of in the English uh, dictionary. They had her say, you That's know, hundreds wild. or thousands of noises for yeah. a couple of days. And that was it. Yeah. So, I mean, if you've ever, if you've ever flown through the uh, booming metropolis of Waterloo, Iowa, and have gone through what the Waterloo Regional Airport, you may have heard Laura's voice before. Wow. Yeah, maybe but, about 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, you would have had to be that person to uh, to hear this and get the free hat. Maybe Laura could have just called in and got the free hat. But, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah <she's coming laughs> my poor husband could have done it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he had to sit in the airport once for about two we hours just gave listening Laura to me. A hat. <laughs> that's oh, right. We already gave one. Yeah. So so uh, anyways, our our commercial, all that all that rabbit trail. Sorry. Uh, no, it's good. That's our fault. It's my fault. But um, our commercial is uh, when we're talking about backyard prairie. We have a very specific program that we're working on here, uh, not just on the Prairie Farm Podcast, but also with Hoxie Native Seeds, uh, who raises the seed that we're talking about. That's that's uh, that's who sponsors this podcast, and uh, that goal is to be in ten thousand backyards by uh, summer of twenty twenty three. Yep, June first, and we've already got a bunch of people that are putting seed in their backyard for yes. prairie. So if you want to get on the bus, 
you need to make sure that you go over to theprairiefarm.com and get yourself signed up for a load of backyard pollinator seed. The way it works right now is if you order between now and fall in November, we're mm-hmm. actually going to ship it to you November 10. Because what? Why, Nick? That's so long. <laughs> I want it now. Two-day shipping on Amazon, man. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, the wisdom of uh, planting prairie in July, mid to late mm. July, is non-existent. So Laura is shaking her head. Well, she like feeding birds. Wait, Laura, why, <laughs> why shouldn't they plant in mid to late July through August and September? Oh my goodness! Well, um, for one, the weather—we're um, not—we're not going to have as reliable um, weather conditions for those those seeds to get the moisture they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing is that a lot of those native plants uh, need a period of cold, um, uh, cold, moist. Uh, oh, wait, I shouldn't use that word on. No, it's recording. Good. <laughs> um, uh, conditions that uh, <laughs> kind of tricks them into uh, to germinating the next spring. So uh, a lot of native plants have built-in dormancy, um, and they won't uh, germinate without that. So if you plant them in the fall, um, you're likely to get a lot more diversity, especially of your your flowering things that you want for a pollinator planting. Oh, and guess what? A lot of those things are flowering right now, so they don't have seeds mm-hmm. unless they've been stored for a while, which in, in good conditions, I'm sure. Um, but uh, your availability of the seed is going to be so much better. Yes. Diversity of seed in, yes. um, in the fall. So yeah, good idea, guys. If we send you oh, seed right and now. Wait, I have one okay. more reason. This gives you time to plan your garden yes. and prepare the ground yes. so that you'll have a good planting bed. So yep. um, my favorite method is just to smother out the old existing grass kill it dead leave it in place and plant into that um that killed turf yeah now 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 what do you what do you use to smother because i like that method too yeah i i've just used black plastic it's ugly as sin but um but i just used two by four or two by sixes tons of two by sixes in my (laughs) you've got those lying around go right ahead i don't have those lying around wow somebody's a you know just did a financial uh power play right there no i just flipped the house this this man owns lumber post-COVID yeah. era. Everyone yeah. go to Nick Lirios. Yeah, instead yeah. of gold, I invested you in lumber. You could throw lumber around. Use yeah. it to right. He just throws yeah, it in his yard. a wealthy man of waste <laughs> throwing his lumber around. Oh, uh, no, that's a that's no. a great thing. What what about tarps? Have you ever used tarps before, Laura? Um, I haven't because I just don't have the tarps lying around, but I suppose if it's a tarp that doesn't have a lot of holes in it. I think sure. the, the black plastic cuts down on the light and that helps kill some things. Mm. Actually, a clear plastic tarp um, will work um, really uh, a lot more quickly. It heats up the mm-hmm. soil underneath yeah. in addition to... Um, just kind of sealing everything in there. And that's uh, awesome. But I learned my first year here that when I was using a clear plastic tarp to, to clear some ground of weeds, that there are certain weeds that love the heat. Uh, so um, yeah. I got like a solid like lawn of purslane <laughs> well, from that. Oh, no. A couple of good friends of mine put their, uh, when they were in high school, their mom wanted them to put this glass table outside. So they put the glass of the table outside on the grass for 20 minutes, 20 minutes. The, the grass was brown. Wow. Just totally. I so did that. you I could actually do it in that. an afternoon. You could just put out yeah. a bunch of glass. Yeah. I did that with a tarp once. I was trying to wash off a tarp after, I don't remember why, but uh, I left, I like that, set it in the grass for, and it was a dark colored tarp in the dead of summer. And, uh, yeah, it just torched that grass underneath just there. So, well, the the interesting thing is that some of the the species that we consider weeds, which are you know those introduced species mm-hmm. that coexist mm-hmm. in our lawns, um, like creeping Charlie, mm-hmm. um, I've found that to survive six weeks under a black plastic tarp. 
So, wow. but you know, it's, it's ubiquitous in lawns. It's going to move into even a planting and it's not that hard to pull yeah. out mm-hmm. and it flowers in the spring and feeds bumblebees. So. Yeah. And that's, that's another good point there. <coughs> Edit that cough out, please, Nick. Um, <laughs> that, that's another good point there. Uh, as Laura said, it's not that hard to pull out, meaning that when you have a, a prairie plot and that's another conversation we have while we're on the road. Whoa, nice prairie plot. Or at least used to be, oh. right? Now it's a horsetail or mare's tail plot or something like that. Yeah, mare's tail uh, don't you, worry about you, as much. You have to, you have yeah. to, you have to get in there and and take care of it. You know, you gotta, you gotta make sure that you're keeping the weeds down, the invasives down. You know, at least the first couple of years, mm-hmm. you gotta right. get the Once grasses. Once it gets really nice and full, and then then you know it kind of takes care of itself a lot yeah. better. But yeah. but make sure that that it's not just a you know prepare the ground, plant, water, walk away. You know, takes takes some time, but if you guys ever have questions on any of these things, we have yes. a couple things. One, Hoxie Native Seeds YouTube. We do like FAQ, sixty second answers on things like when is the best time to plant, or what, well, how do I prepare my ground, or mm-hmm. how do I take care of weeds for the first couple of years. Um, we answer those. They're not high quality videos. They're just like us sitting in a chair. And then uh, um, we also, I've written some blogs on that go a little more in depth on the prairiefarm.com it's on there you just click on blog and they'll come up i'm gonna have laura uh um proofread them uh <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> see if they're actually uh, uh grammarly and uh, scientifically wait correct. i thought you had the grammar down nick <sighs> you my you mom really hope your mom you better you really ago. better hope your mom's not listening to this podcast nick. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to put in a plug, too, for um, this is a shameless plug for the Talkers Forest Center website. Um, We have a series of technical guides that are um, just um, they're like brochures that are available as PDFs. um, And uh, uh, those go through like the whole steps all the steps in the process and and what you would need for planting a backyard prairie would just be things like, you know, preparing the the ground and um, the Talkers Prairie Center dot com. It's .org. Tallgrasspraycenter.org. Okay. Is awesome. If you guys haven't had a chance to visit it, you can see um, all of their resources, which there is a huge list of resources there. <laughs> yes. yeah. And you can kind of see all the staff and, and the people that are working diligently uh, there. It's a really cool place. Uh, they've been a huge part of my learning curve because I came in. I, I, I grew up farming, but I'm not a farmer by blood. I, I like by heart. I'm not a farmer, but sure. I do know a lot about farming. And uh, uh, but when I got to like the scientific side of creating prairie mixes, when I came back from college, and I was lost. And uh, Tallgrass Prairie Center helped me a lot. So oh, that's oh, yeah, awesome. I put in the the the, um, the seed calculator in there that helps you to design mixes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would have helped you guys with your your little exercise at the <laughs> yeah, beginning that's of this. True. I wouldn't have put swamp <laughs> milkweed. In you should. Life. Yeah, you, you, I think you should uh, um, like think about that situation that you were planning this for and and see what kind of a mix the calculator gives you. you yeah, could, right. Maybe that would be the final arbiter of the the whole contest. But well, I've um, got a question. Can I, can I change my swamp milkweed to no, sky blue? No, it's too Aster? late. You owe me a piece of pizza. <laughs> Wait, you won. You owe me the piece of pizza. <laughs> Didn't I get to make the rules? <laughs> uh, okay, quick question for you. One that I get a lot, and I actually don't know the answer very well. Is what would you put in a shaded area if there was maybe two to five hours of sun a day? Maybe two to four sun- hours. Of- so a little bit of sun, but not mm-hmm. not much. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, this is this is getting me into my my gardener's um, mindset for what I do at home as opposed to what I do here at work. So here at work, I'm the plant materials program manager. So um, what I do is I handle the seed production aspects here, um, and uh, we focus on um, species that would be suitable for roadsides. So there's, mm. um, in Iowa roadsides, there's not a ton of shade, as you know, no, um, right, some yeah. other States might have a completely different experience. So I'm, for, so from a professional viewpoint, I work mostly with plants that get, you know, six or more hours of sun a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that situation, if somebody had a partly shaded or shaded yard, I think, a good, um, uh, man, I hate the term workhorse species, but I think a really good workhorse species would be, um, uh, um, Geranium maculatum. Um, um, this is wild geranium. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think wild geranium would be great. Um, uh, also, um, columbine is a okay, beautiful yeah. one. Uh, a lot of these things are early when you flowering. Say columbine, do you mean any columbine or like red columbine? Aquilegia. Um, oh, man, that's one where I don't actually have that on, on the top of my head. That's so funny. That wow. Aquilegia is, is one where I don't know the species names right off the bat. Um, so, yeah, just the, the wild red columbine that you see in savanna type systems here. Um, I think wild strawberry is an excellent oh, really? ground cover that would kind of fill in the the mix. And you could go with some more, um, oh, my goodness, Solomon seal, um, uh, Mary Bell's sedges would be excellent for um, kind of filling in the that that mix. Very nice. Um, I am hearing the most expensive mix I've probably ever heard. Yeah. Well, you know that's that's the trick is that a lot of those species are ones that um, that bloom early and they have kind of these tricky um, seed dispersal mechanisms. And they're hard to grow. It's hard to mimic shade. I mean, oh, besides yeah. actually making shade, mm. we've seen people use nets kind of to mm-hmm. mimic tree shade and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What about grasses? What kind of grass would you put down there? Um, well, there are some, um, there are some shade loving uh, or, oh, bottle brush grass. Elemis okay. hystrix would be, yeah. um, would be one of the, the best. Um, I would, like I said, the sedges, which are not truly grasses, but would, mm-hmm. would fill that kind of niche. If, if sedges, would it, cause sedges, most sedges like wet, but they don't need as much sun mm-hmm. then as the grasses do. There are sedges are so diverse. There's um, something like 110 sedges, sedge species wow. native to Iowa alone. Wow. There's like 500 sedge species um, native to North America, and they are extremely diverse. So we do associate them a lot with wetlands, and they're they're a dominant um, element of those those wet systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, there are um, lots of sedges that are um, great in woodlands, both floodplain woodlands and upland woodlands, and um, you know, oak hickory forests have sedges in them. Hmm. Um, there are prairie sedges. Like I think you, do you guys grow any of the, um, like the copper shouldered oval sedge, the Carex bicknellii? We do the bicknelli. Yeah. Bicknellii, and I guess and, and brevior uh, and some of those. Bebs, um, yellow and fox yeah, is what yeah. we, mm-hmm. we've done for the yeah. sedges. And, and some I, of those are a little bit wetter, but mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think fox and bicknellii are not as wet is my understanding, and then Bebs and Yellow are wetter. But I might have that mixed up now that I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it. I remember planting those in middle school, you know, just... Yeah. just uh, Plugs or... Oh, sitting on the back of that tractor yeah. with the plug planter for hours. Well, <laughs> they make a nice plug, though. I mean, the roots oh, are so yeah. fibrous, they're nice. and they're yeah, not, they're not, not like, like something that's just going to shatter a like a... flower where the roots... Like, like a baptisia like, or something oh, that's got just a taproot no, or... Yeah. That's so bad, mm-hmm. yeah. Our, yeah. Our white, uh, white wild indigo 
was not fun to That's trans- what I would, yeah, baptizia. Yep, yep, and it was... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking the same language, yeah, really. Yeah, we're talking the same thing, kind of. <laughs> um, uh, but then it got oversprayed. Oh. Yeah, so it, it wiped it out. We had mm. just last year had our first relevant harvest. That's a headache because that stuff. How how long did it take? Three years three before years, it bloomed. Three years. We got a we got an okay harvest, and last year and we it got a pretty been, good one. Yeah, and then uh, but we missed. And that's it. such a long lived species when it's when uh, yeah. yeah we so were it was bummed. literally killed out. It was not. It was killed out. It's right on a border fence of our farm, and it was killed. Oh, out. and and what are you going to do? Because they're neighbors. You know, they're not bad people. They didn't do it on purpose. Right. So what are you gonna, you, gonna sue them because that's your only option there's no crop insurance for right for something like that and yeah. you know yeah. we're not willing to do that we you know we that like gets back to kind of the systems that i was talking about yeah so what can you buy crop insurance for right yeah. um yeah. and what yeah. are the loans for and and uh where who's where are you getting information from do you have an yeah. extension service that helps native seed growers figure out how to better grow native seed yeah um do you have um you know all the tools that are at, at the hands of a commodity farmer to do what what yeah. the, what right. you do. Do you have that as, as a native seed grower? You're kind of having to. Yep. Yeah, that'd be another another good creative way to, and, and we're essentially trying. You know, Tall Grass Prairie Center is trying to do that. Yeah. We're trying to do that where we prov- we arm growers and and land conservationists with that information. But uh, it's true. You know, we got to, that's an essential, I don't want to say it's a free thing. It costs somebody, everything costs somebody money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Even even government provided programs. But if we can creatively provide that support network for land users, and they can feel more comfortable about allowing allowing their, Well, that's that's and also, I mean, you got to kind of, you know, that might be something that, that, uh, we can take away from those unfortunate situations too, is how do we insulate our farm from a negative happenstance like that of, of overspray? You know, do you, do you maybe take what Laura just said with the shade tolerant species and uh, put up, you know, a a tree buffer on Mm -hmm. the fence row between you and, and the neighbors to cut down on that, that uh, spray drift and then plant, your shade tolerant species close to those trees and, and, uh, you know, or, or maybe you can, there's some species that just handle, can recover from a spray, yeah. you know, a, a overspray better than others and, and put those there. But we, that information needs to be readily available to, yeah. to go, to go with, you know, the, the financial side of That's the decision-making. It's hard. Laura has been working on that quite a bit. The hard part is, I feel like for you, it's not gathering the information. It's, it's convincing the people who have figured it out the hard way over decades to share yes. that information because yeah. that information is their livelihood. That's, That's valuable. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, is, it is worth a lot of money. And, and so we totally get it. I know um, dad is, re- he's really ready to share most things. There's a few things like cleaning side oats ground. He doesn't, he doesn't want to share because he knows that other people find it very difficult. Uh, and he's like, you yeah, know, if we just clean our sides ground, but uh, um but the last time we were up at the up here visiting with you guys, Peyton and I were up here. There was a lot of conversation about about sharing things, and and uh, I think that as it becomes more regular, and there's more people, there's more people in the growing industry for natives that sharing will become a more common thing. To where we get to a point where there is general 
shared kind of publicly shared mm. information. Yeah. I, I think we're moving that direction. And Laura is a big part of it. She's willing to uh, jump into those messy conversations <laughs> and uh, not afraid to ask, you know, people who have, uh, you know, it's a hard ask. It can be an awkward ask and she's not yeah. afraid to do it. I think well, awesome. I'm working on trying to figure out the logistics of, of enabling that kind of sharing. And, and yeah, and that's where I see is uh, when people start to see the benefits um, to themselves of getting information from others, then maybe there will be that reciprocity. And it, it does remind me a lot, I, I keep bringing up that kind of analogy of the extension service, that basically native seed growers could together build their own extension service because nobody's going to do mm. it for us, right? Right. Um, and, but we don't each have to invent everything um, from scratch. And knowing even which species are most susceptible to um, herbicide overdrift, uh, um, it, then that would be um, something that could guide our thinking about where we place our, our um, production yeah. areas. Um, and knowing, you know, which herbicides would be suitable for use within our production fields for different species. Cause yeah. we're not just dealing with two species folks. We got, mm. you know, how many folks, how many species do you guys grow? I think we're around well, I, I don't think that's all of them. I think that was, I think we were over 35 and just in Forbes last year, weren't we? You brought on, eight, the, on a eight, par with what I've got yeah. growing any given year. Right, yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, or, well, we'll just say around 40. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Around 40. So if you think about the complexity of the decision making that goes into managing, you know, yeah. 40 crops at once, mm -hmm. there's just so much going on. And, and yep. I, I just see the benefits in idea sharing. I mean, I do it with other public growers like um, the Prairie Resource Center at the um, at the DNR. Um, we're constantly asking each other questions. And mm. I have a listserv where I, I pose questions sometimes. And that's yeah. that's super helpful. Another plug would be the DNR. Um, they have a series of information sheets for um, kind of people who want to put in a poll pollinator planting oh, um, at a smaller scale. That's so cool. they've, I think they call it like Prairies 101 or something like that. Yeah. So it's, it's neat. And consult all of these resources. Watch the YouTube videos that Nicholas has talked about. Go to the, the uh, uh, Tallgrass Prairie Center website. Go to the DNR. And when you start reading this stuff, you're getting it from, a lot of times, a different author, right? Mm -hmm. So for lack of a better term, different content creator. But they're all saying the same thing, but with different, different uh, verbiage, you know? And... When you start, so this is this is Kent, the teacher, talking to you. When you start <laughs> to pull your resources that are essentially giving you the same general idea, but from these different angles, you get a greater depth of understanding for what it is you're doing, and it gives you that confidence because we all know that not everything you find on the internet is true. These are three great resources, of course, <laughs> but but uh, it gives you that confidence of you know when you when you put all your eggs in one basket with one resource. That can make you feel a little vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what if their way doesn't work right here on my farm because I have this weird soil type or whatever? Well, when you're seeing it coming from all these different angles, then it gives you that confidence, which confidence is such a huge part of decision-making, right, is is going with it. You know, just like I should have gone with sky blue aster instead of swamp milkweed. <laughs> if I, but, but, Don't tear yourself uh, up yeah, about no, that. Yeah, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, the the... The idea is when you can make those those uh, very decisive choices and and move forward with the plan, you're actually getting the plan there. That doesn't mean you're not going to hit adversity along the way. You're not going to hit a, you know hit some real head scratchers along the way. But um, you know get get arm yourself with that knowledge using these resources and then put the plan into action. And uh, you know 
three years down the road, you'll be looking back and you will have definitely learned some things, but you'll also have a lot to celebrate and enjoy. So three years is a good time frame to, to uh, start patting yourself on the back. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yes. If you don't see anything in three years, then you know, you did something wrong, but <laughs> I, I get people calling me two weeks after they plant it. I'm like, look, this <laughs> They're not petunias, you know, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Although hairy wild petunia is an amazing plant. And for, especially for um, those gardening. Yes. Really? I didn't know that. Ruellia humilis. I know you'll remember that better. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Right. But hairy wild petunia is fun to say too. Um, And that's, uh, it's a fairly short growing little plant. So um, uh, edge of a garden, it flowers almost all summer long, starting about now. Um, wow. and it looks like a petunia kind of, uh, but the, the leaves are hairy and it's, it's a super cute plant and it has exploding seed pods. So it's great for, you know, if you're a former teacher or just have, have kids and are interested in that, throw some of those seed pods at the end of the season mm. into a paper sack and leave them, you know, like in a kid's bedroom at night and they'll hear like popcorn in the night as oh, the seed pods explode. Cool. But yeah, super, super cool species. Um, and I, I get excited about it. I have it all over, you know, like the edges of my garden beds at that home now. so Very cool. Nice. Do most greenhouses carry that? No. No, right. I, I think you should. We should carry it? I think you should carry it. Well, well, the seed is super easy to clean too because it's like, it looks like little lentils. Can you, but can you put it in CRP? Good question. I don't. I don't know. Hmm? You very well could. I, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, if you give us a call, we can definitely get you some. Uh, <laughs> whether we don't grow it right now, but we can definitely get you some. Uh, um, yeah, I, I do think we're getting close to time. We're going to need to start <gasps> wrapping up. I know it's so. Wait, there's there's just I, oh, there's a burning you share issue. I have you need to, to talk to. about. Yes, share whatever. Yes. You need and to. that is um, that is where our seed comes from. Hmm. And I know that you guys at Hoxie Native Seed have grown a lot of Iowa ecotype seed in the past. Are you still participating in the Yellow Tag program? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, excellent. Yay. All right. Wait, Um, remind is there's two programs, Iowa Ecotype and there's Yellow Tag. Right. So Iowa Ecotype Project was was founded um, with a partnership um, with some different organizations, but I, it was here at the Talbot Spray Center, UNI, okay. where um, they uh, uh, were in communication with DNR and other organizations. But um, the original aim of that was to produce Iowa source seed for Iowa restorations. And it was originally intended for roadsides, but now, you know, the, the, those Iowa ecotypes end up in other seed mixes as well. Right. Um, so uh, we, um, we harvest, originally we collect our seed from remnant prairies in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And then uh, for each individual species, we'll take multiple remnant collections. So we'll go around to a bunch of different prairies, harvest the same species from those prairies. We'll clean that seed. We'll grow plants from that. And then we'll grow those out here at the Tallgrass Prairie Center, harvest that seed and make that available to native seed producers like you at Hoxie. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can grow stuff where you know that that stuff has a, it's like a pedigree dog. You know what the ancestors right. of that, that dog is. You know what the ancestors of the seed is, right. that it came from Iowa. It's part of our heritage, and it's adapted to our state. And because we've gone out and we've collected it from multiples of these tiny remnant prairies, you've got as much of the genetic diversity from across our state as we could possibly capture. So that stuff's got the raw material for being able to adapt not only to everything that Iowa throws at it now, but hopefully on into the future. Yeah. So... Um, 
if you guys are, are participating in the the, the uh, Iowa Crop Improvement Association's yellow tag program, that means they um, they inspect your fields and they give you a yellow tag that you can stitch yep. on that bag, and that tells the buyer that they're getting Iowa source seed. So mm-hmm. your your purchasers can also ask, "What's the source of my seed?" And you yes. can you can tell them you know where that comes from. Yes. So it is it is a really cool thing. We actually focus on. Uh, that is our niche as we focus on local Iowa seed. We, um, we do it, provide. Nick. Pardon? You said it. What did he say? Niche. Ooh. Oh, <laughs> niche. Oh, that's right. Are you a niche like guy? Me. Yes. There's two ways to say the word niche. There's the right way, which is niche. And there's the annoying way, which is niche. And okay. Nick just used Laura, the how do you way. say it? Um, how do you, I want to ask you a question first. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm turning the tables on you here. Yeah. Um, how do you say L I A T R I S? Liatris. I mm. like the way you say that. Yeah. I'd say Liatris. Mm-hmm. I hear a That's lot of blazing star, right? Liatris. Ooh. And, mm-hmm. um, I grew up saying Liatris. Liatris. I like Liatris how it sounds, mm-hmm. but I think Liatris would be. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that one too. Now, I've been around so many people who say that in so many different ways that I don't know how I say it anymore. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry, and sorry, anyway, Nick. I, so I, I distracted I, you from no, your, no, your no, argument there. Right? What did, I don't even... Oh, we, no, we're sh- talking about our... Don't, our don't even go back to it. Our... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I, Iowa Ecotype. And, and they found what was happening is, is where land is cheaper, you can grow things cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people mm-hmm. were growing big blue stem maybe in Arkansas or stuff like that, and then they ship it to northern Iowa or Minnesota, right? Same species. Why is it going to matter? Well, they're growing seasons longer, and over hundreds or thousands of years, big blue stem down there has figured out, oh, I've got three extra weeks to grow and to produce seed. Well, by the time they start producing seed and their seed becomes viable in Minnesota, it's too cold and the plant dies, <laughs> or you know, it, it goes it into dormancy yeah. before there's any uh, before there's any seeds produced. And and uh, someone along the way said, uh, "Hey, we uh, this is not good. We should <laughs> stop this." So um, I'm sure that was the birthplace. I don't know whose idea the yellow tag or um, the ecotype was, but. We do get orders from Illinois, from Missouri, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Uh, and and uh, um, we'll use our seed. Um, we, we don't mind doing it, but we don't have seed from there. So honestly, a lot of times we look for local places that are there mm-hmm. and we're going to buy it from them and have them ship it directly to you. And, and we're going to get a cheaper price because we're a supplier and then we sell it to you at whatever their normal reach. So you're paying the same thing, but... Uh, the point is we attempt to get seed yeah. from as close as where you are as we can. Uh, and sometimes that's not always possible. I know Illinois specifically, there's not, I, we haven't found that many strong ecotype growers where that are ready to, you know, ship, um, consistently and streamlined available market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm, yep, exactly. Minnesota is really good about it. Uh, Missouri is just about strictly yellow tag. It's mm-hmm. for their CRP program, which is cool. I understand that limits things and it makes things a little more expensive. So I get the, um, the give and take there, but it, it's, it's interesting to say. Well, and, and, you know, you kind of got to look at it too, from a, a standpoint of if that's what's available to you, there's still a lot of benefits. I mean, yes, it's best to have the matching ecotype if at all possible, but if you can't get it for whatever reason, there's still a lot of benefits just to having those 
grasses or those forbs back on the yeah. landscape. I mean, you think of water quality, uh, air quality, carbon sequestration, uh, you know, habitat, all these things that can still be provided from a non-matching ecotype. But it does then limit you down the road, too, if you wanted to harvest that. And in fact, yeah. we had that problem on our own farm clear back when, uh, if you go back to episode one, when uh, we yep. interviewed Carol, uh, that's what happened to him at first when he first tried growing, uh, I think it was Indian grass. Yep. Uh, he had a Nebraska ecotype. Mm-hmm. And so he had to uh, torch that all and start yeah. over for, I think it was a third time yeah. and, and put it into an Iowa sourced uh, uh, seed variety. So uh certainly you know it's best even if like let's say someone's listening in right now and they're looking at managing a hunting property or something like that they want to want to have more habitat more switchgrass or something right nick Mm -hmm. uh, for for uh deer or pheasants or turkeys or whatever you know they're going to they're you're going to want to try and get it as right as possible starting out so see if you can find that matching ecotype right you know just start off you're already putting in all that work even if it costs you a few extra bucks, you know, bag of seed, it's worth it to do it right the first time. You always feel better about it going forward. And, you know, that's something you can hang your hat on, too. You know, this yeah. is this is seed that matches where my ground is from. So It's a long-term investment, right. too. It's not like you're buying that every year. It's it's yes. something you're, you're putting that in the ground, and, and that's going to pay off in the long run. Yes. And I do – I really like what you said about, um, you know, if – uh, if you're faced with a choice where you've got a list of species that you want in your mix and you're getting, you know, as many of them as you can from mm-hmm. that are, that are Iowa ecotype. And there's a, like one species that you just cannot get available. That's from, from an Iowa ecotype. It would be probably better to have that species in the mix, mm-hmm. um, than to leave it out because you just can't get the, you know, right. the Iowa source. So how, how important is the Iowa uh, is ecotype and, and what I mean by that is, so let's say you can't get anything closer than Arkansas or mm. Nevada. Like, you know, how important is ecotype? You no. could probably draw no. a line. <laughs> it's, it's a tricky question. And there's, there is some research into it. And the way that people do the, the really definitive research is they take um, plants from different, like, ecoregions and they grow them together in the same place and they call that a common garden mm. experiment and they look and to see if there's there's adaptation to those places that is um that still there when you grow them together so that there huh. you take them out of their regular habitat and oh yeah this plant from this drier region is still shorter than the others or mm-hmm. you know whatever that trait may be that's that's um, observable and so there's quite a lot of evidence that there is that that there is ecotypic variation in plants mm-hmm. Um, in, I, I've got to be really careful here because, you know, I've read a lot of things, but I don't, I don't always, you know, have a ready answer for sure, you. So sure. I might want to go back to the books and look at this or back to the papers. Um, but there's, there's mixed information about whether, um, the home, uh, like the home place advantage holds all the time. So there's kind of the majority of evidence says that your, your home-based ecotype is, is going to have a, an advantage of some sort. Um, but there's sometimes cases where something from out of mm-hmm. your region has an advantage and maybe have a greater growth rate. And you might think, oh, well, maybe I should get that cultivar from Missouri because it's going to grow faster and yeah. provide more forage and it's going to provide erosion control faster. But then you got to think, 
are there other functions that you want your planting to provide? Do you mm. want it to have, you know, that habitat structure that benefits wildlife? Do you want it to have the, um, the, you know, like the flower, the floristic or flower diversity for pollinators? Um, if you want to have those features, then maybe you don't want the fastest growing biggest big blue stem that you could get on the market mm. or the the most productive switchgrass because mm -hmm. those things are going to dominate the thing and you're not going to have those other features yeah. uh, and those other functions yeah. so i think um you know it's a complex question it's uh it's not like i'm saying you have to have ecotype all the time um uh, but I think uh, in a lot of cases, especially where it's a long-term pl uh, planting and it's a long-term investment on your part, I think it's um, it's worth it to go that route. I think the the bulk of the evidence says go that route if you can. Yeah, and, and I think most importantly too within that is make sure it's a native. You know. Oh my goodness! Absolutely. There's there's, yeah. there's 100%. so much. I mean, even uh, Nicholas and I were talking about a uh, uh, one that we see all over the place that seems to have been intentionally planted on roadsides that is not a native uh and um what uh, is this one that you're talking uh, chicory? about chicory oh right yeah i think it just may seed itself the well, one that i see is crown vetch okay and yeah. that stuff is yeah. awful it is very very pretty and it's i i, I describe it as the mean girl of plants <laughs> it's pretty but you don't want to associate with it right yeah right. do you uh so um reed's canary oh okay i've, uh, I've got have a, bad... a hatred for that plant i'm yeah. the, okay you think i'm a positive person you just get me talking about reed canary grass i've got yep. some i dad thinks one of his friends might have brought it into the state isn't that crazy uh he thinks that well at least in our region um dad said he'd never seen it anywhere around where he was and he had a young friend when he was like 30 this was on our first episode it was actually the guy who helped him establish his first prairie he was a veterinarian uh and a very interesting guy and this he needed he trying to figure out something to work he, on a bank next to and, uh, and a stream he, and he wasn't speaking of it with pride i don't know no he was like <laughs> i think he later on realized his mistake yeah he was uh, embarrassed yeah. but if that you so that didn't, it just started then... exploding from that guy's farm and just took off everywhere that yeah. stuff is nasty nasty stuff yeah uh, and again we've talked about this before that's where you know burning can help make sure it's a burn at the right time of year get that cold season mm -hmm. grass out of there yeah and mm -hmm. we've i've seen actually someone burn a cow pasture that was almost all brome and he burned it when brome would get to two joints mm -hmm. where it was uh basically stiff enough to burn but fragile but fragile and he burned it twice two years in a row at that point and it basically wiped out all the brome and the next year he had little blue stem big blue stem switchgrass indian awesome. grass all, side oats grandma all of these a couple sedges came in naturally that have it's never been tilled. It was cow yeah, pasture. Right. Wow. Yeah, which I think is so Yeah, that's cool. another good little th tidbit there, too. And I'll get back to, to where, where I was talking earlier. But if you have that cow pasture on your ground, maybe you just uh, bought an acreage or something off of somebody. Or maybe uh, um, it's a family farm and you're done with cows or whatever it is. Uh, realize that if that's historically been, you know, livestock ground, there's going to be some of those root systems still down there, most likely. If it's never been tilled or sprayed, uh, they could just be lying dormant under, you know, some yeah. of these newcomers that have been shading them out for so long. Mm -hmm. But, uh, 
yeah don't don't lay a don't lay a plow or a disc to it yet Make, give it yeah. give it a fair chance to try and get some remnant seed coming back up and then you know you got the right ecotype and you know you got a native yes. find out what's there first i think that is a good approach when you have when you have existing grassland yeah. or even some of our grasslands that have been you know covered up by shrubs and, yeah. and trees yep. yeah um get in there control that brush and and see what's there first yeah. before you um yeah. you smoke it all with herbicide yeah. that's <laughs> right. over. It, we don't want to be the home depot of prairie we don't want to convince you that you're going to work for 30 seconds and have a new painted room uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's just not how it works so those commercials are they're terrible um, maybe it, we need a, but wait, you know, like so Sherwin Williams has that, that slogan, like cover the earth. Yes, yeah. Maybe we need that for native plants. <laughs> there we yes. go. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Sherwin That's, Williams, if you'd like to sponsor this podcast, you'll allow us to use your, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. maybe they could do a line of paint colors that was there like inspired go. by, um, yeah. a wild bergamot and, uh, gray headed cone flowers. Butterfly milkweed. Butterfly milkweed. Yeah. That'd be for the teenagers room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> bright orange <laughs> oh man I, I feel like uh they could actually put some of the petals of the flowers into their yeah, mix there you go, a little sell it full flower petals or something Three wow. that would be very niche yeah, yeah. that would oh, be very niche Laura. wow oh. man ken <laughs> sounds like you're having a hard day we talked <laughs> oh, about <okay. laughs> a lot today we, we talked about being a teacher we talked yeah. about your favorite species in a mix we talked mm. about you growing up and and we t- we covered importance of ecotypes. We covered, I mean, my little sister's poopy diaper. Oh, what did we not cover goodness. today? Don't remind me yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say earlier, I want, I want to get back to this point because uh, make sure that what you're planting is a native because I was just looking at a bag. I don't know where it came from. I don't know if we bought it or if my we just bought our house for my, my grandparents. And uh, I don't know if it was, I was cleaning out a, a shed on the property and there was a bag of a, a well-known uh, brand of seed. I don't remember what the species was, but it was not a native pollen. It was a pollinator mix. And a lot yeah. of the, the species in there were natives, but there were at least one or two that were not. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, buying from a, a place like Hoxie or somebody that we would recommend as being a safe buy to match your ecotype yeah. is definitely the way to go. Amazon.com is not the place to buy no. wildflower seed. No. You know, you you type in wildflower seed mix on Amazon, mm-hmm. and you're going to come up with a bunch of stuff that is yep. is like Eurasian wildflowers that right, have no business right. being here, just like our wildflowers yeah. wouldn't be good there. Yep, and that's exactly how we end up with these invasives that dominate the ditches. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I heard dandelions, and... not even from North America. Do you know? Is that true? I believe that's a European, isn't it? It and probably. bull thistles. I heard bull thistles are the same right. thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but pasture thistle, the ones that have the white underneath mm-hmm. the leaves, those are a native plant and they're a wonderful pollinator plant. Really? Observe those sometime and you're going to see um, bumblebees, uh, butterflies, moths, beetles. I can't imagine trying to like Maybe they'll make it. Maybe they'll make it onto a, a uh, episode of Beautiful Weeds, Nick. When I'm Beautiful out. Weeds, he's got Ooh. a series going. Ooh. Oh man! Okay, yesterday, I'll be back. Yesterday was the, call, uh, call me. Yesterday, yesterday was flower of an hour. It was a uh, little hibiscus. Oh, hibiscus trionum. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're beautiful. Beautiful little flower. Yeah. yeah. Man, well, okay. Laura, thanks so much for joining. Thank we you will, guys for inviting me and for coming love up to here. Have, yes. Next time you have to come down, and we yes. are. Getting a podcast studio, so you'll be able to. Uh, hopefully, by the time you, you come down, we'll we'll have that going. Exciting! Then yeah. I'll be even more nervous. <laughs> no, so no, it'll it'll be great. It'll be great. You were amazing. We love love hanging out. 
Thanks, and you uh, too. interviewing you, you are awesome. And Kent, do you want to do the honors? Close us out. You want to do it? Yeah. So a couple of things of homework for you. Make sure you come over to, uh, can you give us the website one more time, Laura? Tallgrassprairiecenter.org. There you go. So head over to the Tallgrass Prairie Center website. Also head over to hoxynativeseeds.com and theprairiefarm.com. You can yeah, uh, prairiefarm.com over Hoxie Native Seeds, I'd say. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, uh, yeah, head over there. And uh, you can, the nice thing about the Hoxie website is you can get some of the about us information and, mm-hmm. and uh, more of a historical understanding, I guess you could say. But the Prairie Farm is going to give you that link to the other big thing we got to talk about, our goal, our goal by 2023. We want to be in 10,000, 10K backyards by the summer of 2023. We already got a few faithful conservationists out there who've helped us get going towards that goal, but we need a lot more of you. So make sure you head over there, get that seed thrown in your virtual shopping cart and get your yard prepared and planted this fall. That's when that seed will be going out because we want to make sure that uh, it's in the best condition when it gets to you and ready ready to be planted. So make sure you do that. And uh, when you do all that, you are keeping up with our goal, which is conservation happens one yard at a time.